Hello, and welcome to the CFA UK podcast series on climate change. My name is John Tehan, and I am a portfolio manager with Red Wheel. In these CFA UK podcasts, we hope to shed light on issues facing portfolio managers, analysts, and others within the financial industry as we face the challenge of climate change. In this episode, I am joined by Tom Gosling. Tom is an executive fellow at the London Business School, where he contributes to evidence-based practice of responsible business by connecting academic research public policy, and corporate action. He is also an executive fellow of the European Corporate Governance Institute, a member of the advisory panel of the Financial Reporting Council, and an advisor to the steering committee of the Purposeful Company. In these roles, Tom has researched and written extensively on such issues as pay, corporate governance, sustainable investing, stakeholder capitalism, and climate. He engages extensively with corporates, investors, policymakers, including the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, the Financial Reporting Council and the Financial Conduct Authority. Tom was formerly a senior partner at PwC, where he established and led the firm's executive pay practice. Tom publishes a blog, several of his posts we will touch on in this episode. In these blogs, Tom teases out many of the difficult issues within our industry and takes an independent view in assessing the evidence offered by the various sides. The conversation is broken into two parts. In the first part, we focus on Tom's work on assessing evidence underpinning sustainability research. And then we focus on fiduciary duty and how to incorporate non-financial issues in our stewardship of capital. Both topics are fundamental for investors when incorporating climate into the investment process. Welcome, Tom. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for inviting me onto your podcast. So, Tom, can you tell me a little bit more about your background and what made you so passionate about these issues from governance, pay and stewardship and how that led you to writing about climate change? Yeah, sure. I mean, so, I mean, I started out life as an academic many, many years ago, um, 25 years ago, pretty much. Um, but at that point, decided it, it wasn't the career path for me. So I moved into professional services and through a series of kind of accidents, ended up being asked to set up uh, an executive pay practice at PwC. Uh, around the turn of the century when this was becoming kind of a very hot issue. And so I spent um, a couple of decades advising kind of boards on um, remuneration issues and then more latterly uh, wider corporate governance issues and became increasingly interested in um, the way that uh, investors and boards interact and respond to the incentives they face, particularly in relation to kind of creating positive um, societal um, outcomes. And so I, I'd always planned to do something else with my life when I got to 50. And so that came in, in 2020. I'm not sure about my, my age. And I moved back to academia, this time with London Business School. And as your introductions explained, I really now try to create a bridge between academia, policy and practice a, across a range of these uh, responsible business issues. But the climate change uh, issue and it actually grew um, for me out of a sort of a personal commitment I made a few years ago to reduce my own carbon footprint by what turns out to be a hopelessly optimistic uh, 50% by 2025. Um, but going through that sort of um, personal um, exploration of how I might do that also got me really interested in how uh, the corporate governance system and the interaction between investors and companies either kind of supports or inhibits that, that wider societal change we need to make. And so that's how I really locked onto that issue in my professional life as well. 
I think when we think about our own personal carbon footprints, we then realize what companies are doing. We'll, we'll do the easy lifting first, and then later on, we'll figure out how we decarbonize the harder parts. Absolutely. In terms of um, executive fellow, it sounds a, a rather grand title. What, what does that mean from day to day? Where, where do you spend most of your time? Yeah, so um, I mean, so for both uh, London Business School and the European Corporate Governance Institute, who, who, who use that title, it is really for somebody who um, has a professional background and career and therefore is fundamentally a practitioner, but who also has a deep interest in and sort of understanding of the value of academic research and is interested in creating that bridge. So I do do some of my own research. So, for example, with um, co-authors um, Alex Edmonds and Dirk Genter, who are proper academics, um, I did a survey paper looking at how boards and investors think about the process of, of setting CEO pay. But actually, most of the time I spend on practitioner-oriented work, which is really trying to look at what the academic evidence has to say about important issues that practitioners grapple with and, and try to bring some of that structured thinking to bear in, in a way that's helpful for people who are grappling with these issues in the real world. And so a lot of my time is spent um, interacting with with investors, with boards, with policymakers, convening events. As you say, I've, I've, I've got a blog and I write in various formats where I really try to synthesize what the evidence has to say on, on some of these issues. What was interesting in, in some of the blogs that you've written so you say you really look at the evidence, you look at some of the academic research that's put out there, and you look at the methodology and, and you assess whether that's a fair approach. Is that something that you, you kind of use from your background? Is, is that where you get that strength or do you have resources within LBS to help you to really look at that, that research and, and understand whether it's credible? Yeah, and I mean, so I obviously have colleagues in LBS who I could draw upon to you know, help me really understand whether evidence is credible or not. And, you know, and I think it is a bit of an issue that we always have with, with research is that, you know, academics are no different from anybody else, right? They face incentives and, um, there are incentives to publish and incentives to publish noteworthy pieces of work. And so, you know, we have been in a phase where, you know, it's become kind of, you know, almost, almost the norm to find research that um, supports the idea that, you know, ESG creates value and everything's a win-win. Now, if anything, we're now going into a phase where it's fashionable to debunk some of that and, um, you know, and argue the opposite. And so it's always um, important to look at how a research design has been put together to ask the question, you know, can this actually support the claims, you know, that are being made by the authors? And, and this is where I think it's particularly helpful to look across a body of research, because any single academic paper will tend to look at quite a narrow question in, in, in quite a narrow context of application. And typically, a single academic paper doesn't produce results that are generalizable in any helpful way to the real world. But if you look at the whole body of research in an area, then actually you can start to draw conclusions that it's all you know, pointing in the same direction. Now, in social sciences, nothing's ever definitive. Um, but actually, you can get pretty strong supporting evidence for one position or another, which really also helps inform a structured thinking process. So would you think that perhaps in the past there was, there was an element of focusing on only the positives of ESG? We only wanted to publish things that were supportive of the entire, the entire movement, if you like, where now we're getting to, to an industry or, a, I guess, 
an ESG period where there's a level of maturity happening and we're allowed to question and allowed to test some of these assumptions? I, I think that's really fair. And, um, you know, I think if you go back kind of over, over the last five years, you know, the way to get corporate funding, the way to be invited to speak at prestigious conferences, you know, was really to make the case for alignment between ESG and value creation and, you know, painting this picture that there's a kind of a win-win between all of these dimensions. Now, I think uh, we are getting to a greater level of maturity and potentially questioning some of those assumptions, or at least asking under what conditions they're true. I mean, I think, unfortunately, there is also a little bit of an immature backlash um, to ESG as well, which is, you know, painting it as a as an entirely malign force, which is, um, of course, as absurd as pretending that it's always, you know, a force for unmitigated good. So, um, you know, as ever, I mean, I always try to look for a position of kind of evidence basis and balance in these arguments, because normally the truth lies between the two extremes. And, and we speak about this when there is a very clear backlash in the US among some states about ESG. And I think that's what is so important about the discussion we're having is about the fiduciary duty. And, you know, it's, it's a grey Monday morning when we record this podcast and it feels a bit early to go so quickly into a heavy subject like this. But that is one of the main topics I would like to discuss with you, because fiduciary duty of asset managers and how we determine the boundaries in of the ESG issues we look at, and particularly climate change, is so difficult. So can you start with maybe explaining the framework that you created um, from LBS, uh, between LBS and the Investor Forum within the study? What does stakeholder capitalism mean for investors? A framework that helps us to think about these ESG issues. So I think a really important bit of context here in relation to fiduciary duty is is just this to remember that asset managers and asset owners are dealing with other people's money generally, not their own money. So for asset managers, that's clearly their asset owner or, or retail clients. And for asset owners, it's often you know pension scheme beneficiaries or or, or, or other um, clients for whom they're managing uh, money. And so yeah, we always the, the whole point about fiduciary duty is that those asset managers and asset owners need to manage that money in their client's interest. But at the same time, um, those asset owners and asset managers are coming under increasing pressure to be part of the solution to some of the big problems that the world faces. And um, there are all sorts of issues that have been raised as being systemic risks to society that asset managers should play a role in. And uh, I mean, climate's kind of the obvious one, which I'm, I'm sure we'll come to talk about later. But um, also we've seen things, issues as broad as um, biodiversity, antimicrobial uh, resistance, um, you know, COVID um, infection and vaccination rates, inequality. I mean, there are all sorts of demands that are being placed by interest groups on asset managers to act. And um, the challenge for asset managers is to figure out how to choose which of those issues to act on, whilst remembering that it's other people's money that they're using to act upon those issues. And um yeah, asset managers are really uh, facing a deluge of these sort of issues and claims. And, and they need to be able to articulate not just why they're acting on certain issues, but why they're not acting on other issues. So that was the overall context to this piece of work um, that the Investor Forum uh, asked us to collaborate with them on uh, here at London Business School uh, during um, 2021. And um, it was a year-long project that involved engagement from um, between 30 and 40 members of the Investor Forum over a number of kind of working sessions and, and discussion papers. 
And um, one of the outputs from that, and in the report, um, what does stakeholder capitalism mean for investors, which you can find on the Investor Forum's website, one of the outputs was a framework for helping investors to decide uh, which of these issues they should act upon. And um, the framework had three tests um, in it, uh, and um, I'll, I'll outline it at a sort of high level, and then maybe we'll, we'll, we'll use an example to illustrate it. But the three tests were um, materiality, uh, efficacy, and comparative advantage. So materiality was that um, yeah, investors should only act or, on an issue in relation that, that, that is material to the investee company or the investor itself. Now, materiality itself is a, is a really, really complicated issue. But at a simplest level, you know, it, it, this can be interpreted as being that investors shouldn't be acting on issues that have no impact on their investing companies or where the investing company has no real impact on, on the issue. Uh, it's a bit more complicated than that, as we'll see. Then the second issue is around efficacy. And it, this is the point that investors should have a, um, a reasonable expectation that their actions can have a real world impact. Now, when, when we look at the academic research on various sort of responsible investment activities, I mean, what we tend to find is that the real world impacts are a little bit less uh, than we might hope. Um, but, you know, and so really understanding whether the investor action is going to bring about change and whether it's going to bring about that change at a cost that's sort of reasonable in, in, in light of the likely stakeholder benefit. Now, that calculus isn't always very easy to compute, and that's going to require judgment. But um, again, investors shouldn't be using their clients' money to undertake expensive actions that don't have a lot of impact. And then the third test was around comparative advantage, which was to ask, are investors particularly well placed to act on this issue? Um, or are they, are there other actors that are much, much better placed? And so there are certain issues like, um, pushing for better disclosure from corporates where investors are uniquely well placed, um, to act and, and have strong comparative advantage. But there are other issues which are much more kind of system wide issues where it's much less obvious that they're the best place to act. And actually, other parties, particularly governments, may be much, much better placed. Just to pick you up on the efficacy, when you say using client money, do you mean looking at the underlying companies and demanding of the underlying company to do something that will cost them money and therefore that plays back up the chain to the investor? And that's probably the normal way to, to think about it. So, um, you know, if if actually one of the issues that you're wanting to act on is, um, you know, inequality, uh, for example, um, you know, do you have an action that you can take in the investee companies that you invest in through your engagement with them or what you're pushing them to do uh, in order to uh, improve the problem of inequality? So you might think, for example, that pushing for uh, an investing company to pay higher wages is, is, is one way to um, address inequality. But these effects can also work at a portfolio level as well. And I think um, climate change is, is perhaps the best example of that, where you can argue that not just through engagement, but through the whole way in which investors allocate capital, they can potentially send signals that push towards a more decarbonized path. Again, I mean, the evidence is Unfortunately, a little bit more sketchy on that than some of the rhetoric, but um, this can happen at the portfolio level as well. And before we get to climate change, because obviously that's what I really want to tease out with you, I want to just look at one example that happened over the summer, because I think that does help to set up the, the discussion around climate. And that was the, the shareholder proposal at Sainsbury's. 
that was put forward by Share Action and some other large asset managers in favour of making Sainsbury's an accredited living wage employer. Now, Schroeder's was an asset manager that came out on the other side of that discussion. You wrote at length about the, the, the vote itself and about the, the various arguments. Can you give us maybe first some background on the vote and then how you use the framework in assessing the decision? Yes. So, um, I mean, for people who aren't aware of, um, you know, of Share Action, they're, a, um, they're, a, they're an NGO that seeks to um, cohere shareholder support around issues that um, benefit society. And so they um, played a significant role, for example, in the um, prominent campaign to get uh, HSBC to toughen up its um, climate targets in, in 2021. So they act as a convening organization. And one of the routes they use uh, on occasion is to uh, work with shareholders to co-file shareholder proposals. And so they did this with Sainsbury's in relation to living wage on the basis that they identified the supermarket sector as one where there's still quite a high prevalence of employees and contractors paid below the living wage. And um, they felt that they, through engagement and then ultimately tabling a shareholder resolution at Sainsbury's requiring them to become a living wage accredited employer, that they could act on this issue of inequality. And so what the resolution would have required Sainsbury's board to do would to have gone through the process of being an accredited living wage employer, which requires them to set wages for all employees and contractors uh, at a level that is um, determined from time to time by the Living Wage Foundation. And this is at a level that is higher than the national living wage that is set by um, the government. And Share Action saw this as a systemic issue or a systemic risk? Yeah, so they exactly right. So, so they claimed, well, they made, a, they, they made a number of cases, right? Which, which comes back to this, this first test in, in the framework we developed with the investor forum. So is this a materialist? And share action really made two claims. So one was actually it's material for the company because if the company plays its employees better, then they will have more motivated employees. They will have lower absolute rates. They will get higher productivity as, as, as a result. So that was one argument that they wrote, that they ran. But the second argument they ran was that actually inequality is a systemic risk, which affects the cohesiveness of society. Uh, it affects the overall political and social context within all within which all business operates. And therefore, it's in the interest of business in aggregate and for investors in relation to their portfolios in aggregate to do all they can to bear down on this on this issue of, of, of inequality. And so this brings us to this kind of first test in the framework with the Investor Forum, which is, well, is this really a material issue for companies? And, and what I felt about it was that if you really dig under it, the evidence that in a low margin sector, you will improve profits simply by increasing employee wages is, is, is actually just kind of not there. And it would be surprising if, if life were that simple. you know. And, and, and actually, the fact that you know, no supermarket is is an accredited living wage employer, despite many different ownership structures, including family ownership, private equity ownership, listed company ownership. You know, it would be kind of surprising if all of these boards had missed the easy win-win opportunity of increasing wages to, to increase value. So I didn't think that materiality argument was very persuasive. And um, then when it comes to inequality in society as a whole, um, again, you know, the question is really whether inequality in the UK is at a level that is really um, 
affecting the social fabric to the extent that it's likely to undermine capital markets. And again, when you look at the evidence around levels of inequality and the blowback into capital markets, whilst it's certainly true that there are companies that operate, there are countries that operate very successfully with lower levels of inequality than the UK, the levels of inequality where there appears to be a relationship back to the overall kind of economic output of the country tend to be at much, much higher levels of inequality than we have here and a little bit more applicable to kind of Latin American type situations. So again, the evidence for that sort of systemic risk didn't really completely stack up. And so on that basis, the materiality test, uh, I didn't felt feel was, was met. Although there is another sort of materiality dimension that we acknowledge in the investor forum work, which is so-called intrinsic materiality, which is that you might just feel a moral motivation to address an issue, regardless of its financial consequences. But of course, that requires you to have a very explicit mandate from your beneficiaries in order to rely on that kind of materiality. And when you were developing the materiality framework, did you think in terms of double materiality, in terms of outward materiality, was that, and, and, and how do that, how do you assess that? Yeah, we did. And um, I think one of the things that we did is is moderately useful in the report is that we sort of integrated various views of materiality into a into a single framework. Because you're right, I mean, materiality has sort of really come of age in the last couple of years. And um, the old style materiality was just, um, does, does this stakeholder or stakeholder issue have a material financial impact on the company and its prospects? Um, and that obviously creates a very clear mandate for investor action because it's just the self-interested action of, of someone trying to address the stakeholder interest the impact that addresses that affects the bottom line. Whereas now we've got this concept with various different views of materiality. One is the concept of systemic materiality. So this is where, you know, for example, um, if you're a resources company and you are damaging the local environment in the um in the countries where you operate, that could remove your license to operate in that country. So you have a direct financial self-interest in sorting that issue out. But financial materiality can also operate on a systemic basis. And and climate change is the archetypal example of this, where um, you might engage with a heavy emitter to uh, reduce emissions faster than maybe optimal for that particular company in the belief that acting on climate change is helpful for your portfolio value more broadly. So so you can have these kind of systemic issues. But then, as you've mentioned, you also have this concept of outwards materiality, what we call impact materiality, which is you might have an issue that is not directly financial material for the company right now, but where the company has a material impact outwards. And I mean, human rights in supply chains is probably, you know, the classic example of this. Now, why might um, you want to act on, 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 on this as an investor? Well, again, you know, um, impact material issues are ones that, you know, you know your, your, your clients may care about. And so they have, if you have a clear mandate from clients that they don't want to make money through certain types of business practice, that can create a business case, uh, for acting. I think there are certain issues like human rights in supply chain where there's, uh, you know, a general kind of societal consensus that we just need to drive this out, these issues out, even if they cost, um, cost us money. But there can be a self-interested argument as well on the basis that you know, if you have a significant negative impact on a stakeholder, that may well come back to bite you in due course. And again, we can use climate as an example of that, where you know companies have had a negative impact on climate change for you know for decades. Um, 
but it wasn't viewed as financially material until very recently. But you know, that negative impact on the environment is becoming recognised and acted upon by society, which creates possible feedback loops for companies, whether that's through regulation or consumer preferences. So all of these different types of materiality are relevant and need to be assessed and taken into account in the assessment. We should close out on the Sainsbury's proposal. You felt the materiality was not proven, that the evidence was not there to support the thesis that profits would increase by raising wages in a low margin sector, nor was the systemic risk there. What about the other two principles of the Investor Forum framework? efficacy and comparative advantage. How did the Sainsbury's shareholder proposal measure up on these two? Yeah, I mean, just briefly on these two. I mean, efficacy, let's suppose that the resolution was successful. So clearly, shareholders have efficacy in the sense of being able to require the Sainsbury's board to become an accredited living wage employer. So for those particular uh, stakeholders who were the current employees of Sainsbury's and contractors of Sainsbury's, that could produce a benefit. However, I think there are two kind of question marks. One is, would that have actually contributed to addressing inequality more broadly in society? And that depends very strongly on what you think happens next. If you think that all supermarkets then follow Sainsbury's and become living wage accredited employers and other low margin sectors follow suit, then potentially yes. Or if it simply makes Sainsbury's less competitive uh, and therefore less successful as a business so that actually employment increasingly shifts away from Sainsbury's to other supermarkets who are not living wage accredited. I mean, you can, you can take your arguments about whether it will be effective or not on the broader issue of inequality. I think the other problem with efficacy comes back to this point around, are you creating a stakeholder benefit that exceeds the cost? And whilst you might be creating a benefit for those particular current Sainsbury's employees, um, those costs may well get defrayed elsewhere, either to prices for consumers, uh, lower a future employment for people who can't, aren't currently um, employed by Sainsbury's, as well as, of course, lower shareholder returns. So it's not clear that you're doing anything more than just shuffling money around as opposed to creating a net stakeholder benefit for society. And then finally, on comparative advantage, I mean, one of the reasons why I thought that the living wages issue was a slightly odd one to pick on is that it's a UK issue. The Living Wage Foundation is, is, is a UK foundation and based on wages in the UK. And in the UK, we actually have a relatively mature framework for setting a statutory uh, national living wage. Uh, this was set up by um, the Labour government in, in the early 2000s. It has survived a coalition government and a conservative government. And we have a body um, called the Low Wage Commission of experts that take multi-stakeholder input that try to balance the considerations of wages for employees and livability for employees, uh, economic growth and future employment prospects. And in fact, they've been set a mandate by the government to increase the national living wage, a statutory wage, as rapidly as possible um, towards two thirds of median incomes, uh, consistent with not undermining employment and economic growth. So we have this well-supported multi-stakeholder framework that can actually deal with this issue across the economy in a much more effective way than action that any given company is, is ever going to do. So I, I also, you know, so you can always claim that, oh, this is, this is an issue for government to deal with. What's unusual about this national living wage situation is it's an issue that government is dealing with in a, you know, in the scheme of things, a rather good institutional framework. So I, I felt also that investors don't really have comparative advantage in, in dealing with this issue, uh, in the UK. This brings us to the end of part one of our conversation with Tom. 
Thank you for listening. And I hope you take the opportunity to listen to part two, where we move the conversation directly onto climate issues. Goodbye.